Over the last few weeks, I have shared Hosea's story. Uh, and it is a crazy story if you think about it. God wanted Hosea to marry a woman who he knew would be unfaithful. God wanted him to marry her anyway. He wanted Hosea, who I'm portraying this morning, to do this to reflect Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness. They had committed spiritual adultery against God by running to idols and Canaanite deities rather than seeking after God with all their heart and mind and soul. Gomer, my wife, would commit adultery against me. but God called me to love her still. He told me to buy her back after she had gotten herself into slavery. Just like God would pursue Israel and Judah and seek to bring them back to himself, he wanted me to pursue Gomer and bring her back to me. Although I had a case to divorce Gomer because of her unfaithfulness, God wanted us to reconcile. God had a case against Israel and a case against Judah. As a matter of fact, God wanted me to lay out this case like a prosecuting attorney. So I got their attention. I confronted them and I said, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They had become a people who were unfaithful. They were unstable and they were unreliable. They were unfaithful to God and their love for others and God warned them. And those who were responsible to teach the next generation, the priest and the fathers, were neglecting their responsibilities. And as a result, the knowledge of God, which once permeated the land, was deteriorating. And as a result, the commandments that God had once given through Moses were being broken right and left. I reminded them there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now I understand that swearing has a different connotation in your society than it did in mine. One aspect of cursing was invoking God's name to call down unjustified curses on other people. As people would use God's name in this way, they would be taking it in vain, which was a violation of the third commandment. They had also become liars. They were deceitful. Deceit had become a part of their lives. They had no steadfast love toward their neighbors. They were bearing false witness against them, which was a violation of one of the other commandments. And it had become very commonplace. They had become guilty of murder. They had taken lives of those around them who were created in the image of God. Their value of life had deteriorated. Once again, they were ignoring the commands of God. Not only were they not valuing life, but they were not valuing the concept of private property that God had established in the law. Many of the people had resorted to stealing and taking things that did not belong to them. And Yes, just like Gomer, they had resorted to adultery. Many of the men and women of Israel and Judah were not valuing their marriage vows and had become unfaithful to their spouse. Things were out of control. It seemed like every person 
was doing what was right in their own eyes. The nation was deteriorating and God was fed up with the unfaithfulness of his people. Their actions brought harsh and difficult consequences upon the land and its inhabitants. And remember that God warned them that he was going to bring them into the wilderness. He was going to bring them to an end of themselves and bring them to a place where no, uh, where there was nowhere else to turn and no one else to turn to. And so I told them in verse 3, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. Also the beast of the field and the birds of the heaven even the fish of the sea are taken away. One of the reasons things got so bad is because the very people who were supposed to be God's representative to the people, the priests, were neglecting their responsibilities. They were not teaching God's truth. As a result, God told me to tell them in verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Think about that concept, that, that the God's people were being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. And who was it that was supposed to be giving the people knowledge? It was supposed to be the priest, and it was supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the household, the spiritual leadership who should have been leading God's people into knowledge were neglecting to do so, and as a result, the people were living in ignorance. The priests were rejecting knowledge, and so God would reject the priests. The priesthood had become so corrupt that they were using the sacrificial system for their own gain and benefit. You see, God would allow the priests to partake of a portion of the sacrifice in order to take care of feeding their families. But it became a sham. What they were doing was really encouraging the people to send more and more so more sacrifices had to be made so that they could take more food home with them. It was a sham. God was not pleased. He said in verse 6 of chapter 6, He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God was not interested in just all of these uh, uh, spiritual rituals for people to go through, but God was desiring that they truly love Him. God wasn't interested in these empty sacrifices. He tells them and uh, told me to tell them in verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, and they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. And as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. The people had this mentality that as long as they were going through their religious rituals, as long as they were making sacrifices, as long as they were showing up to the temple and, 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 and confessing their sins to the priests and the priests were making the sacrifices, that it was okay for them to live any way they pleased. It was okay for them to live however they wanted to because as long as they met these conditions, as long as they went through the motions, somehow that made God happy. God wasn't happy. The priest's underlying motive was not 
to help people to repent and get right with God. Their underlying motive was greed. They abused their power for the purpose of filling their own bellies. God was not going to keep blessing that wickedness. As someone in your culture said, you can't live with the devil and expect God to pay the rent. So God removes his blessing. He told me to tell them in verses 11 and, or 10 and 11, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine which take away the understanding. You see, when, when they gave themselves to the uh, uh, sensual, immoral lifestyle and gave themselves to intoxicating beverages, it messed up their minds, it messed up their thinking. The very thing that they were pursuing to find satisfaction was only leaving them hungering for more. The very false gods they were worshiping to bring fertility to their lives was going to leave them barren. They said no to God in order to say yes to whoredom and wine and new wine, which does nothing but dull the senses and decrease understanding. Sensual pleasures were robbing them of sensibility. I hear that's happening in your culture too. Sensual pleasures robbing people of common sense, robbing people of sensibility. They engaged in pagan practices. They were looking to sticks of wood for answers instead of the Creator. He told me to tell them in verse 12, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. The very places on the mountaintops that Moses told them to destroy were places that they were going to worship the false gods. He said in verse 13, They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. God is a just God. And he realized it wasn't just the women who were living like spiritual prostitutes, but the men who should have been the spiritual leaders were leading their families away from God. So God said in verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Remember, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Israel was stubborn. Do you know that God hates stubbornness? Stubbornness is like a fast-growing, uncontrollable cancer that destroys the healthy cells around it. Did you know that God called for extreme punishment against stubborn children in the law? 
Listen to what Solomon said about stubbornness. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will be suddenly broken beyond healing. Those who are so stubborn, they're told over and over and over again, and God pleads with them over and over and over again, yet they continue to run away from God. They continue to say no to God. They continue to disregard God. God says there will come a day when they will be broken beyond healing. The psalmist said, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. There will come a day that people who choose to live in stubbornness, God says, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. Sad state of affairs. That's where stubbornness leads. It leads to brokenness. And continued stubbornness leads to God letting them reap the seeds of stubbornness. There will come a time when people turn away from God and His counsel and His word long enough and often enough that God will allow them to have exactly what they want, life without Him. They want God to leave them alone, God will leave them alone. So, Hosea 5.15, Word of God says, I will return again to my place. This is God speaking. I will turn again to, unto my place until... Key word, until. See, Hosea's message is a message of hopelessness with glimmers of hope spread throughout. And God says, I'm going to go to my place. I'm going to leave them alone. I'm going to let them live on in their stubbornness if that's what they choose to do until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, earnestly seek me. God says that He will leave them alone, and He will go to His own place, until they do two things. The first thing that they must do is acknowledge their guilt. God lays out a case against Israel and Judah to clearly show that they were guilty. No doubt at all. Like a prosecuting attorney, Hosea laid out the case. And it was clear that they were guilty. But they were so deceived and so ignorant of truth that God sent Hosea and other prophets to confront them time and time again about their guilt. Guilty of spiritual adultery, guilty of idolatry, guilty of immorality, guilty of sin. And they were willfully ignorant of the truth that they had refused to confess their guilt. But how about you? Have you ever acknowledged your guilt before a holy God? Have you ever come to the place where you recognized and realized that there was nothing you could do 
take away the guilty stains of your past? Have you ever realized that you are guilty before an infinitely holy God who has declared in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Our sin, our guilt, has earned separation from God. Eternal separation from God. We cannot erase our sins. We cannot pay for our sins. We cannot excuse our sins. We cannot make restitution for our sins. We must acknowledge our sin. And when we acknowledge our sin, when we acknowledge our guilt, when we acknowledge our sinfulness, 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. God wants us to get honest, to get real, to quit making excuses and come before Him in humble contrition and say, God, be merciful to me, a pretty good person? Absolutely not. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have sinned. I have broken Your law. I have rebelled against You. It is as if I were there at Calvary holding the nails that drove the spikes into your hands and into your feet. I am guilty. God says when we acknowledge our sin, and we acknowledge that He alone can take away our sin, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and He forgives us. So the first thing that He wanted us to do was to acknowledge our sin. But the second thing is to seek God. Listen again to what He said in verse 15 of chapter 5. I will return again to my place until, there's the condition, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress earnestly seek me. Now what had Israel and Judah been seeking? They had been seeking a God of their own making. God wants us to seek Him. Too often people seek a God of their own making. They're looking for a spiritual sugar daddy. They're looking for a God who will serve them rather than seeking for a God who is worthy of their service. They're looking for a God who will give them their best life now, rather than seeking the God who is worthy of their best life. And I ask again, how about you? Until they came face to face with their guilt, they would never, they would never seek the one who could solve their guilt. And that is the one true God. God promised through the prophet Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. 
we acknowledge our guilt, when we acknowledge the stain that sin has left behind, God takes the purifying blood of Jesus and washes us in that precious blood and all of the stains of our guilt and our past sins and our present sins are removed. We can come to a personal relationship with God. It's possible because God sent His Son, the Messiah, to become that holy and pure sacrifice to take upon the wages of sin that brought you and that sin brought to me. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm telling you all the things that this world promises, they never ultimately deliver. They never ultimately give rest for your soul. Jesus says, you're weary, you're, you're laboring, you're heavy laden. The way of the transgressor is hard. But Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest for your soul. Jesus went on to say in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Some of you are wondering and thinking maybe this morning, can I come to God the way that I am? With all my guilt, with all my sin, with all my, with all my regrets, with all my stains, with all my past? Yes! He says, if you come to me, He says, I will not cast you out. You have to acknowledge your guilt. You have to seek God's face, not seek what God can give you or what God can do for you, but seek Him. God's grace and mercy and forgiveness are boundless. You will never experience His boundless grace and mercy and forgiveness until you confess your guilt and turn from those worthless idols to the Creator of the universe and surrender your life to His Lordship. Today we have the wonderful privilege and opportunity to confess our guilt to the only one who can remove it. We can't remove our guilt. We can't do enough good things to outweigh our guilt. We stood before a judge, we're guilty of murder, and you said, but, but judge, I've lived 58 years and I've only committed one murder. Think about all the people I didn't kill. That's not going to get us off the hook. Because we're still guilty. We have to let God deal with our guilt. And He deals with our guilt when we acknowledge it, when we confess it, when we forsake it, and we embrace Christ to forgive it. So today He invites us to confess our guilt to Him, not to a man, but to the man, Christ Jesus. The only intercessor between God and man to remove our guilt and remedy our guilt. Today is a day to quit seeking anything and everything but God and turn to God and give Him your life. I, I was working on the message this week and chapter 4, to be quite honest with you, is a very 
bleak, dark chapter. And I said, Lord, I don't want to end in chapter 4 because I know there's some good news around the corner. And so I, I, I wanted to end with chapter 5, verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek where are you at today? I don't mean where are you at physically. Where are you at spiritually? Have you ever acknowledged your guilt before God? Have you ever wholeheartedly, without reservation, cast yourself at the mercy of God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I cannot rid myself of my guilt. I cannot rid myself of my past. I cannot rid myself of the shame that the enemy wants me to feel. I cannot rid myself of the regrets and the mistakes and the sins against a holy God. I cannot rid myself of those things. So I trust Jesus. I don't trust religion. I don't trust a preacher. I don't trust a priest. I don't trust a church. I don't trust baptism. I don't trust giving an offering. I trust Jesus, I trust what He did for me on the cross and the price that He paid for me when He bled and died and I trust in the fact that three days later He walked out of that grave victorious over death, victorious over hell, victorious for me so that I could have forgiveness and victory and be reconciled to 